start. Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carroll Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk, Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press, and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All, from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writing MFA. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Be real! Do you think it would be better or worse if one of us got the coronavirus and like part of the drama of the podcast was like, does the guy improve? Better or worse than what? What our current model. <laughs> our current model is more sustainable in the sense that nobody might die. Our mo- Yeah, our current model is like a Kelly Reichert movie where you like kind of know nothing. You're not going to see the bad thing. <laughs> You want to turn it into an Alex Carlin script. Yes. Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solon Pfeiffer and joining me on the other line, I'll let you say your own name. I don't know why I jumped in. It's Noah Ballard. It has been for a while. It will continue That's to be. That's what it is? Noah Ballard. That's yeah. not how I've been saying it. Do people mispronounce your name, Chance, like when they call you? Like people, strangers, telemarketers. Uh, like I'll get definitely get a solemn or a puffifer, or as we've discussed, like Chase from people I have actual relationships with. It's so weird how like all of the women of a certain age. Is this where your resentment towards women of a certain age comes from? Is the fact that they can't remember your name? <laughs> completely fucked as a line of questioning and i do not acknowledge it do not have any resentment toward women of a certain age because i thought the movie the wife was mediocre (laughs) this is not a bit that should continue anyway we're still alive we're still here (laughs) we're still recording a podcast uh and we're as happy to be on the playlist podcast network as i'm sure they are to have us after those comments you just heard you should find the playlist podcast network feed wherever you get your shows like apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher anywhere and please check out our fellow shows on the playlist podcast network like the fourth wall of the discourse indie beat and uh any sort of like non-assimilated non-categorizable shows of which we'll be having one pretty soon yeah. Oh, that's the big news. I teased it a little bit on Instagram, and two people asked me about it in passing. So the I, well, the anticipation <laughs> seems to be at an all-time high. For the truly groundbreaking announcement that we're going to review a TV show by the same person that we're doing a movie podcast about. It seems like a departure to me. Let's hope it's, the, it's a leap in the, the right direction. Um, yeah, I mean, with movies effectively not coming out and streaming being the thing we'll have to interact with, at least for the next few weeks, I thought it'd be interesting to do a deep dive on a visual 
artist such as Alex Garland. And I mean, he's like a, he's all over the place. He's a novelist. He's a filmmaker. And now he's like a showrunner. Right. And so we were going to do, because Hulu and FX just put out that show devs um, that he did. We're going to do, we're going to do a deep dive into the first half and then the second half of that, of that series. For now though, movies, it's still only movies. Don't, I won't hear of any more TV. Um, At least till tomorrow when we record the podcast where we devoted to TV for an hour. And like 10 minutes from now when you reference devs, which I would encourage you to do. Um, But we're going to talk some Alex Garland movies on today's program. We're going to keep the main emphasis on some of his screenwriting credits from earlier in his career. Um, Primarily because... We have reviewed in full Ex Machina and Annihilation before, though I think we should probably talk a little bit about both still. But yeah, Alex Garland, what's the setup here, Noah? He writes a book called The Beach in 1996, right? So he first writes the novel The Beach, which is, of course, then optioned and made. That's a movie we can talk about. Have you seen that, Chance? I have not. I watched it again just for for gigs well i guess i didn't realize that he didn't write the script until i watched the opening credits after i'd spent the four dollars on amazon and then was just like ah fuck it so i ended up watching that it's interesting but it is curiously directed by danny boyle who then goes on to make the next two garland collaborations we're talking about absolutely um and then he gets attached for subsequent movies after the beach to do the screenplays and that's what we're going to talk about and then, yeah, he moves into his own space with movies we've talked about with Annihilation um, and with Ex Machina, which are, they're all of a similar kind of movie. And we'll get into that, of course, when we, you know, have this podcast right now. Um, but yeah, and then moving towards this idea of the money now is in being a showrunner for one of these streaming shows. He's now right. moved from writer director to, you know, like, whoever maybe like a sam ishmael with mr robot kind of thing it's almost kind of curious that it took him so long to get on tv because that idea that sort of bygone more like william goldman like i'm just gonna be a top dollar like original screenwriter for hire which you see with like 28 days later and sunshine is now like barely possible if not possible at all in the studio system so you see him basically start to direct and then, yeah, ends up... I think that David Benioff would be another analog. Oh, sure. But yeah, Garland firmly in the sci-fi space. And they're all sort of of a similar sensibility and like universal humor, shall we say. Where like in these movies, the same kind of like cosmic fuck you will always <laughs> render itself before the end. I wondered how fine a point you were going to put on it, but... Um... Yeah, I think it's a fascinating question as to whether there is any like larger hope or good feeling in his movies. Because on an, one thing he truly does not care about is like the physical well-being of the hero of his movies. Like fuck the individual is like what a lot of his movies seem to say at the end, even when you have care for the character. Um, whether we are just hurtling toward the inevitable apocalypse or whether life is just evolving in a more interesting way, a la 
Annihilation or in something like Dread, which is just sort of like blatantly and like nihilist. Um, but the cosmic fuck you, I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they all have this sort of this sense of irony that in the present condition is it can be tough to watch five movies back to back and then a whole series front to back uh, without getting sucked into that headspace a little bit and that like sort of thinking. Yeah, the universe may balance, but like our hero is scathed forever or dead or stardust. So tell me about the beach. The beach is weird. Um, It's Leonardo DiCaprio and he's hanging out in Southeast Asia and fucking Robert Carlyle bursts through this window. I've just come from this island and I have this map to get back to the island, but like I can't go back. But you should, if you're looking for like salvation and like the thing you are as an American living in or traveling around Southeast Asia, you will find it at this island. Like half of the island is like a drug growing island run by these this, these gangsters and the other side of the island is a utopia and they sort of exist okay. in this yin and the yang and because Leo and this couple show up onto the island, it like is the thing that pushes it over the edge that it can no longer exist. Oh, interesting. So it sort of has questions of these like small social units. Okay. And they're way away from everybody else. You know, it kind of reminds me most of Sunshine of like, here's this group and they feel like they're on a noble mission, but then like, I don't know, it gets thrown off course. But yeah. That's interesting. It's it's not like a great movie. Uh, it, it feels very novelistic, like much like maybe uh, Never Let Me Go benefits sure. from being a novel first. Um, yeah, but it's it's certainly like thought provoking enough that you can see why it got enough radar around it that people were aware of both Danny Boyle and Alec Gar- Alex Garland going forward. Interesting bit of trivia. It was Nick Hornby who sort of like in his review of that novel crowned Garland like, oh, great voice of Gen X. Hornby himself has that exact same reputation, and he's the person uh, about whom we're going to podcast next with movies like High Fidelity and About a Boy. Nice. Isn't that weird? I wonder if that's a thing of, can we accuse Gen Xers of just anointing other voices of Gen X? Is that something they like to do? It's just one white guy handing it to the next white guy. (laughs) Me in a record store, you in a spaceship. Yeah, whatever floats your boat, man. So that brings us to 28 days later which is 2002 is that right boy is it ever and this time garland is working directly with danny boyle on this production um this is a fairly famous movie that i had never seen uh mostly mostly because i was just averse to horror movies at that age i remember seeing this like right when it came out and it's scaring the bejesus out of me Sure. I can imagine. All these movies are pretty intense. Hello! Hello! (laughs) 
So who are you? Wake up today in hospital. Wake up and I'm, I'm hallucinating. Hello! I've got some bad news. They're infected. Infected! Butter. Infected with what? Oh, I shouldn't have done that. With the blood. There's something in the blood. So 28 Days Later begins with a harrowing like opening set piece where these animal rights activists were to assume believe that Noah's already palming his face as if to be like, guys, don't do it. <laughs> don't let the chimps out of the cages. Not the ones literally filled with rage. I think it speaks to the way Garland views. He's also very interested perhaps in the inherent abuses of power that come along with wielding scientific knowledge because the movie doesn't seem to say that the activists are like morally incorrect because when you see the opening of the chimps in these like horrible cages and that one who's got all the nodes on his head as he's just being shown like different images of riots around the world throughout the 90s and 2000s. You're like, this is the prototypical, if not exaggerated, kind of horror show of live animal testing that we've been taught to beware of. Like, right. it is true. They are doing gross shit. It just so happens that they've wielded the power to such an extent that you should not let the monkeys out of the cages. And there's also the visual irony, too, of showing, yes, these, like, violent moments in, on mass public display uh, on these televisions. But it's the visual irony of like, would you be able to tell if somebody had a virus in them that made them extra violent because of the situation that some people are already in? And so right. then for an animal rights is just the, the microcosm they choose to go with to like not make the movie too political. But yeah, sure. sure. But it's also kind of a goofy way to start this movie, isn't it? Like as a prologue, a it's, bit. It's a very like like uh, airport thriller kind of you know prologue. You know, twenty eight days it's earlier. Yeah, it is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of surprising about this movie. I, I had seen this, so I sort of know knew the beats of it. But remembering that it picked up there was kind of like a weird false note to begin on because it's otherwise kind of a premise one takey kind of movie where it never moves away from Killian Murphy. Sure. Yeah. And I don't, it's not like literally one take at all. It's no, Boyle. but it has like a lot of long shots. I mean, of course it also right. has Danny Boyle's like insane cutaway so much so that you often can't see the action on screen. Yeah. So let's talk about this sort of visual style. So they film, with like very early like camcorders and yeah. are like super committed to the not even like shaky cam as like a style like the big opening of Cloverfield it's just like this is like the visual palette of this movie is just is so lo-fi and one of the really cool things especially like in that lab scene at the beginning is a lot of them are like surveillance camera angles. Like you'll catch people from the same like angle right. that a you know a, cor a corner surveillance camera would. But then it becomes very sort of invigorating and sneakily cinematic when Boyle actually does kind of tee up the conventional action movie thing, but with the same technology. Like the POV shot of the chimp running down the cage corridor out at the woman is the same way that uh, Michael Bay. 
um, or John McTiernan would probably shoot that scene. It's just in the Danny Boyle language. Yeah, and then the sort of guerrilla style of this, knowing full well that it like is in London at the outset and not on some soundstage and not rendered digitally, gives this movie like a strange authenticity to it that it feels like a sort of oh, documentary. God. So the plot is that Killian Murphy's a bike messenger who got whacked on the head and has been out for four weeks, during which time... All of England, more or less, has been. It's basically the Jared Leto ravaged. story about him coming back to coronavirus. <laughs> um, I'm glad that's still carrying water at your in your place. Um, I think about it I'd for- hourly. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that already. The story, if you hadn't heard it, was that Jared Leto went into like a soundless retreat or something for ten days right. in the forest and came back, and coronavirus was like suddenly out of nowhere a thing right i don't think it affected his life at all so murphy wakes up everyone's gone and then the yeah the you can't really can't say enough about how incredible those shots of london utterly empty are are at the beginning because none of it's faked it's all shot in the 5 30 a.m to like 6 a.m quiet like that's their window and uh trivially enough it's also like right before 9 11 boyle has said that like had they tried to they finished a lot of the movie after 9 11 but he says they would not have been able to clear streets and get those permissions um, oh for sure it's eerie yeah. as hell yeah they, the day they were shooting the the omelet scene was 9 11 or according mm. to imdb so the first sequence is sort of interesting because you're kind of waiting for that first scare, right? Because at first it's like there's nobody around. And like as eerie as it is that it's everywhere is empty and places you expect to see bustling are not, you also kind of know in the back of your mind that this is like a zombie movie. So like what's going to happen? And sure. I think the way that it's done is so smart. He goes into this church because like I guess that's the – that's the last place people go before they, whatever shitty happens. How very English. And he finds it filled with bodies. He sort of demoralized, shouts out like, hello. And these three fucking heads pop out of the dead bodies and turn and face him like, and you know, like, it's on. And then, of course, the famous shot of the the priest running at him, coughing and like right. reaching for him. Ugh, it's very... He Boyle knows how to build those like sudden tone changes, like going from utter despair to to terror. Uh, he's a he's a master. And the fact that Boyle can kind of like in the dark just have an actor poke their head up like a dog who just you just call to see if they want to treat. I don't know horrifying human actor, and it happens later with the guy in the contacts in the window. It's one of the best scares of the movie. But it's there's something so jarring about how it fits into a. To camera work that you wouldn't think it could really fit into. Yeah, absolutely. And like when the, the the sort of visual creation of like when these guys get out in the open, like they're fast. And like, well, this is one of the things uh, mature horror heads would know better than us. But this is a very early like example of the fast zombie, which you then see, like again, all through like two thousands depictions. We should say that not only is this movie easily categorized by being like an Alex Garland movie and doing it that way, it's also like of a conversation of zombie stuff that kind of got a huge 
burst and kind of got a huge bump from this the success of this movie both critical and commercial sure yeah you've got i mean you obviously have the walking dead becomes a utter phenomenon like six seven years after this right um but also like i am legend like owes so much to this movie dawn of the dead will come two years later yeah that's snyder remaking romero before we talk about acting and just kind of round out our be real style discussion here. Where do you where do you see Garland in what in its setup is still a very conventional like zombie premise? It is, uh, but it is still like a, a dystopian kind of conceit of oh, it's you know everybody gets this virus or gets picked off by the people who do have the virus kind mm-hmm. of thing, which I think would attract him. But I also think it's the cosmic fuck you moment. So there's two that I'd point out, not to spoil anything. This is a movie that's 20 years old. Um, when they get to the army, they're, they're right to, it's before they meet the army guys and they pull over the taxi and Brendan Gleeson is trying to like shoo the crow who's picking at the, like the dead body on that bridge and the oh, drop God. of blood hits him in the eye and like one that's of the best parts the way, of the movie. That's the way he gets the fucking virus is by that stupid thing. That is yeah. such an Alex Garland moment. Um and then I think when Killian Murphy shoots out the chain holding back the the off the, the soldier that's gotten it, uh, who's chained up and he gets released, which leads to the shot you're talking about earlier, uh, with the the eyeballs in the glass window. Uh, Yeah, that was such a, that's a very Garlandian like moment of switchery. Sure. Trickeration. Um, Which you absolutely, I mean, similar to Ex Machina, right? Free the AI and see who gets held accountable. The person who freed them or the person who kept them captive for the first place. For sure. And speaking of, another thing that really reminded me of Ex Machina is he is really good for the most part at when people with power develop a sort of abhorrent to the audience belief system. He's very good at putting the right words in their mouth to have them explain it in not a super like mad scientist stylized way. And in this movie, it's the major who you find out again, spoiler has basically been putting out this broadcast of, Oh, we found a cure to get women to come to the barracks because he has to like find a way to, for his, you know, eight or 10 troops to have hope for the future and repopulating the earth and whatever horrifying way. But he's got the great speech of what is that actor's name? Um, Oh, the guy who who plays plays the bad guy from gone in 60 seconds. Yes. The carpenter? Christopher Eccleston, right? Who really looks like Ray Fiennes in this movie. I kind of remembered it being Ray Fiennes. If I, I was kind of disappointed to see the bad guy from Gone in 60 Seconds pop up in that role. <laughs> I was absolutely Googling the other Fiennes siblings to be like, he's got to be somewhere on the Fiennes spectrum, right? He's got the great speech where he shows Killian Murphy that they have locked up one of their infected compatriots. And he's like, we're keeping him to teach us something. And Killian Murphy in his great kind of like completely numbed out ways. Like, and has he taught you anything? And the guy says, well, he's, he goes, it's, it's great screenwriting. He goes in a way he's teaching me that he'll never bake bread, raise livestock or sow crops. And eventually 
He'll teach me how long it takes for an infected to starve to death. Um, which, like, right there, you should be very, very, very suspicious of this man. But there's something about the really ice-cold rationalization of somebody like this and then somebody like Caleb, played by Oscar Isaac and Ex Machina, that's very... It's chilling because it is half-convincing. Right. Or sort of like Charlotte Rampling then in Never Let Me Go. Yes, for sure. Yeah, he's really attracted to these people, these true believers, so to speak. And they make for, just on a movie level, great speeches for actors, which is, I think, why you get so many good actors in all these movies. Yes. This one's definitely well acted. And like Naomi Harris, the fact that she believes the set of rules too, where it's like the second you know someone has it, you don't let, what is it, a heartbeat before you just kill them. Right. And that's something that, you know, of course, changes by the end of the film. But you see that play out to such dramatic, you know, effect, especially when, you know, it's almost sort of Game of Thrones like where it's like, who's the character that's going to get me through this part of the story? And then when are they going to die and who will remain? Right. I think it. I like her in this movie. I think it is a little funny that she already kind of has this like post-apocalyptic Tina Turner look going. Nice. It's like, oh, you were you were ready for a shit to hit the fan because you already kind of looked like a Mad Max character with that yeah. haircut. Let's see. There's one other thing I love about this movie, but is there anything we want to cover that uh, didn't quite do it for us? I think this movie gets a little long, maybe. Like it has oh, it's two... Like an hour 40. I know, but it has like these two sort of distinct acts that I don't know quite like work together. I feel like a lot of Garland movies like have these sort of act breaks where it's like the before thing and then like the after thing. And this one is like they're on their own. And then it's like, oh, when do you trust the system to sort of put things back together? And to both of those, the answer is like, like it's it's on us, guys, I guess. But still, they're like still looking for that. I mean, not to, I won't spoil the ending, but it is sort of an unresolved situation still. Um, sure. I don't know. I didn't, I mean, I get what you're saying about the good screenwriting and whatnot, but as a movie, I thought it kind of got more by the numbers once they get to the cav- to the mansion. Oh, really? And like, didn't think it was as formally inventive. Um, also these movies also have a lot of mansions in them sure he's into like a cool house alex garland i really really do like it and i'm probably gonna give it a good good um Mm -hmm. i actually have a little less patience for the maybe it felt like sort of like great interiority at the time but the kind of obligatory like dreams and the the you having to understand that like they are getting post traumatic or they're going through traumatic experiences that are affecting their ability to sleep like in real time, um, I get that that kind of has to be there, but it it also just kind of feels like ex- like excuses for Danny Boyle to trip the fuck out. Yeah, this movie when it gets a little trippy, and that's why I like the Danny Boyle stuff, especially outside. Like, I think in mm-hmm. London, he gives that frenetic, like, he, he sort of knows what to do with it. But when he gets sort of, he gets trapped, he also gets kind of freaked out. And I think that's also an issue with uh, Sunshine, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, yeah. 
but maybe that's what I mean. Maybe it's because the storytelling gets so interior in the second half that it's like not as much fun. Maybe. I'm also not sure when you, I think, I think you're where I agree more is probably just the like by the numbers thing. The fact that they get like stuck with the daughter who they have to take right. care of is kind of like, I don't really know what the, the efficacy of that is. And even or, like, like what's the... to be really gained. And the corruptible, like, lieutenant-level military person who, like, has a secret plan is, like, kind of tropey as well. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, The best part of this movie, though, for me, bar none, and I love, love, love the way they, like, they hope you're on board and don't spell it out, is the fact that once Killian Murphy escapes the mansion, escapes execution, and comes back to rescue people, he begins to resemble more and more the fictional trope of the zombie as the sort of like the wan, skinny, shirtless guy careening around without like a thought in his head, no inhibitions whatsoever. And I think that's supposed to kind of dawn on you slowly of like, he's, he, he basically has become one of the infected to infected to beat these guys um and then they just kind of tie a ribbon on it where naomi harris almost kills him because he looks so much like your cartoon zombie but they don't spell it out up until that point i think that's that is interesting i like that moment where she only realizes at the absolute last second that he is not infected because he yeah he does sort of physically resemble them that's interesting we want to rate this puppy yeah i mean i said it already i think but good good for me I think it's good, good too. Um, my mind was not exactly blown, but uh, I can see one of the interesting things is you can see how Boyle and Garland are such a great fit and sometimes not quite a great fit. And we'll talk about that in Sunshine and we'll talk about that as we kind of move ahead. All right, you want to go to 2007? What happened that year? Why did you bring that up? It's the year Sunshine came out. That oh, movie nice. we're discussing now. <laughs> I remember renting the DVD of Sunshine. Well, renting is a strong word. I borrowed it from the video store where I worked, uh, sure. which was allowed. It wasn't it wasn't stealing. You could take they, a covert loaner. Yeah, at the end of the night, if nobody had rented it and you weren't like keeping them from making money, you could watch it to like give recommendations to people. That was encouraged. Oh wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that plays with the hell out of business as fast as it could. <laughs> What was RIP it called? Princeton Video. There it is. There in the Princeton Shopping Center. And what did you make of Sunshine at the time? I couldn't remember anything about it other than at some point someone gets absolutely just like toasted from the sun. <laughs> Here's another original script from Garland with Danny Boyle yet again. Danny Boyle, yeah. Uh, synopsis a team of international astronauts are sent on a dangerous mission to reignite the dying sun with a nuclear fission bomb in the year 2057 coming up guys the big twist of this movie is how did we not do it on either of our research mission is not what it seems episodes technically not a research mission i would put this in like with a movie like the core um, or armageddon armageddon yeah or even right. deep impacts doesn't fit that's why you're the keeper of the categories. Yeah. We got Killian Murphy again, too. They must have liked him in 28 Days Later. He's the physicist. He's in charge of the bomb. And they have a bomb the size of Manhattan Island hurtling towards the sun behind this, like, big Ray-Ban that they're all hiding behind. 
Could you tell that this is an English-led production because they called it Manhattan Island, which no one in America would ever call it? Right. Which leads me into another nice bit of trivia, which is Boyle thought it was so funny that uh, Americans would never call it the Icarus. Like, that's way too symbolic, way too dark. They'd call it, like, the spirit of hope. And I thought that was, like, a real fuck you for us to name it that. You know what I thought was funny about the name of it is that in the video where Mark Strong, the captain of the Icarus One, calls it the Icarus One, why would you call it the Icarus One if you thought (laughs) it was going to be successful? Whoa. Are you... The admin of the IMDb Goose page? Yes. That is pretty legitimate. I believe you found a trademark IMDb goof. I wonder if it's on there. That came fresh from from my eyes to my mouth. So anyway, yeah, they're hurtling towards the sun in this sort of goofy looking spacecraft that doesn't look like it's coming back. That's like the first thing I noticed. It's like, (laughs) well, I just kind of assumed from the, the mission itself that they were not coming back. But then they kind of like play the wink, wink. Oh, yeah, it's got backwards thrusters, too, for the people pod. It's like, come on, guys. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Everything on that ship is pointing towards the sun. You guys are not coming back. Uh, And, of course, things start to present themselves uh, that keep them from both coming back and then ultimately not being able to potentially complete their, their mission and deliver the payload. How many times is the word payload used in this movie, Chance? Is it over 10? Yes, a suspicious number of times. Did we say that their goal is to put a nuke in the sun to restart the sun? That the idea is the sun is Is a dying star? Is that ever explained? I mean, it's explained here in the IMDb line, but I don't know that the movie says anything more than like, we derive all of our warmth from the sun and I was on a mission to save it. (laughs) I think Garland has a little bit too much pride as a sci-fi writer to have the thing where, like, the cook is like, so what's this crazy mission again? And someone's like, let me show you. (laughs) Let me show you in this PowerPoint presentation that I cooked up just in case you might have asked. It didn't didn't bother me that much. I mean, we're in the realm of some real highbrow nonsense here anyway. The sun, but though the the listener should know, the sun's still very much on. It's not yeah. like a, a smoldering ember. It's, it's very hot still. Our sun is dying. Mankind faces extinction. 16 months ago, I, Robert Kappa, and a crew of seven left Earth frozen in a solar winter. Our mission, reignite the sun before it's too late. Welcome to Icarus 2. It's a little bit like screenwriter bullshit, but I just go nuts for people who develop these kind of obsessions on the in these sci-fi stories. So the fact that Cliff Curtis is like, let me look at that motherfucker, and the computer's like, only 1%. Character actor Cliff Curtis, and character actor Cliff Curtis is like, turn it up to fucking 3%. She's like, no, that's not safe. But all of these people who are like obsessed to a borderline sexual level... With the sun, I'm mad into that shit. That's so funny because I think that was going to be my biggest critique of the movie. Oh, is I, that love, I it's, love it. It's sexualization of the sun. Mm. And people get like what addicted a beautiful orb. to it. 
Yeah. And did you notice too that Cliff Curtis, like his his skin began begins to get dry and then peel? Incredible. At one point, he just kind of whoosh, pulls it off like a bubble gum off his face. Horrifying. It is horrifying, which of course does not ready you for this movie's <laughs> greatest note. <laughs> we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, I think this movie, if I can kind of jump to it, is just a lot more than 28 Days Later. And there's like, so there's like more good and there's more bad. Yeah, um, it's a full-blown like alien type movie where, yeah, you have a large, well-developed cast. Um, a lot of really interesting actors in here too, like doing interesting things. Uh, mm-hmm. Rose Byrne, she makes it pretty far, I would say. Uh, she does. Not dying in space thing. Um, Michelle Yao is really good in this too. And she's so right. sad when her plants get burned up. Well, she's kind of like the classic, like, I'm here for, I'm a botanist. And they're like, well, yeah, you'll get really sad when the plants burn. That's your job. And that is. Sure. But, it, but everyone's it, I stuck felt, in their role. I felt sad for her when the plants all burned up. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, I get that. Um, Benedict Wong is very sad about a mistake he makes. Let me ask you this. What? It's a good thing. This isn't really a question. It's more of a statement. True or false, Chance? <laughs> True or false, Chance? Yes. It's a great thing that Chris Evans found his role in Captain well, America. Snowpiercer. Is that what where you're going? Snowpiercer? Is you going oh, to no. Snowpiercer I was right going to say it's just a good thing he became Captain America to like let out clearly a lot of like physical energy he needed a place for. Yeah. He's really not very good in roles like this and like a lot of his pre-marvel roles are like like he's too good looking and he's like a little bit smart so people are like you're gonna play the asshole um and unless he's allowed to do that full bore with sort of like some smarm a la knives out which i think he's great in it doesn't really work and so in this movie he's just kind of like angry but he's also mean and he definitely looks like he's in fleet foxes at the beginning oh for sure um, I do love, do you ever get that feeling of like when a prior era that like maybe in the back of your head you think is still going on and then you see something like the haircut of Chris Evans in this movie and you're like, oh, nope, 2007 was a different era entirely. Like we're now Absolutely. done with that decade. That was my feeling. Yeah, it, it took him until like what, 2016 to figure out what he was doing haircut and beard wise. Um, you know who's great again though i think is killian murphy he's really good too he's got some good hair looking a lot like the lead singer from goo goo dolls sure i mean haven't you said before that his face is kind of an optical illusion i've thought that before maybe i've expressed it i believe you said it on the when we reviewed red eye um which I 100% agree with because like you catch him from one angle and he's a very handsome man and you catch him from another angle and you're like, Voldemort. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's true. And that works out really well when it's happening with his character for like, so sometimes in this movie he's like, he's clearly the protagonist. He has some sort of uh, romantic thing going on with Rose Byrne. And then one of the, best screenwriting and simultaneous acting moments of the movie is where they're taking the vote 
on whether they should kill or like mercy kill Benedict Wong to make sure who is like catatonic and suicidal and like they need to make sure they have enough oxygen one person needs to go and they're everyone's kind of grandstanding a little bit and they're like this is the way it has to go like let's vote and Killian Murphy like they look to him and you think like well here's our conflicted hero like what's he gonna say in this moment what Kirk Douglas X-esque speech is he gonna give and he just goes kill him and you're like oh yeah Killian's turned he dropped in a, just a subtle kill him. Incredible. Yeah. Let's talk to not only about the performances, but just like how gorgeous this movie is visually. It looks great. It does look great. Sun looks great. Apparently they spent the least amount of time they spent on this movie was actually filming it. Most of this went into like pre-production art and then the effects afterwards which is so it's not surprising. That's so wild that they spent more money like just building the thing on both the visual and the style level than they did actually making it. Yeah, the production design is gorgeous. Like definitely the use of the color gold owes a lot to like the original Solaris cuz those those suits and you can't really tell if it's just like the reflecting light of the sun, but the fact that they kind of look like glam jousters is uh is very striking. Yes. And I also liked, this is one of my favorite, I would say ships. Cause it can be creepy when it needs to be creepy, but it also like, you have the sense that anything can kind of happen and it's sort of fragile too, in a way that adds to the, the visual tension. I love that scene where they're like, Oh, we can just like, we can't get from one side of this airlock to the other. Like we'll just rip off the things from the walls and wrap ourselves with it. Cause this thing like right. comes apart and it's like, it gives you such a sense that, you know, what they're doing is so complicated because it it's so like, you know, weightless and like w- without real structure to it. So with the reappearance spoiler, if you don't want this older movie spoiled, with the reappearance of Mark Strong, who I was giving you shit because you kind of spoiled it for me. But at the same time, like you see Mark Strong in a video at the beginning. You're like, he's going to be in the movie. It's like one of those, you know, like if you've seen movies, he's too famous not to be. Mark in Strong it. doesn't get out of bed to be in some like prologue video. <laughs> um, also, have we ever, t- I don't know if we've ever like really sung his praises on this show before. But I, certainly not in the Shazam episode, but I love him just as a physical presence. I mean, like, the line of his shaved head and nose and chin, he just kind of looks like like a universal movie monster era, like Mummy or Frankenstein. For sure. He's so imposing. He is so imposing. And he can be like a force for good, too. Like in 1917, he's just like a, oh, that definitely is the colonel. Like, look at him. Look at his fucking nose. Look at those pins. <laughs> there, Yeah. He's, um, in this one, he is terrifying. So his reemergence is both, I think, uh, the movie at its best, but also the movie like coming apart a little bit. Yep. It's where the actual Garland Boyle partnership like over the course of time tends to come apart because when you first see him and he's hanging out in the sun chamber and you know he's he's fully malignant so he's turned that shit up to like 18 percent and he's just kind of (laughs) he's just kind of this like 
Balrog figure of like pure flame, just the form of a man. And you're seeing something very like expressionist. It's the kind of thing that Garland will be very interested in in Annihilation, right? Where it's just like the form of people, like we've we've hit some plane beyond body horror to just be like simple. I don't know. Like, is he God? Is he a mannequin? Like what is going on? Um, How pissed do you think the makeup artist who probably spent hours putting on third degree birds makeup entire over the entirety of Mark Strong's body was when she saw this movie and realized the whole thing is obscured. That there is no like steady, clear shot of him. Not once. There's no, I really, he, there's gotta be a happy medium between this and like Van Helsing running across with the Dr. Hyde, Mr. Hyde from uh, Van Helsing, Stephen Summers, the originator of the term bulbous. This movie yeah. doesn't have to be bulbous to like let the makeup sort of do its thing a little bit more. There's a there's not seeing the shark and then there's just like never seeing the shark ever. Yeah, and they kind of also take away speak I think he's both the shark but they also never give him the quint speech really. He he kind of talks briefly about how like I prayed to God for 7 years and something but that's it. Yeah, and then of course and I he's got that. Wanted him to rap a little bit. He's got that great moment where his like arm comes off the way like a piece of broiled turkey pulls away from the bone. It's uh, right. it's pretty icky. But it's I think you're in the right to use that word here. But I think that this is the issue is that I don't have a problem where we like pivot into full horror at the end. I think it's terrifying. I think the actors are overqualified to do it. I think Boyle's overqualified to do it. The problem is that like, it's both supposed to be a movie about like how people have lost their mind and the camera has lost its mind. And this is all on some sort of, you know, hellishly sublime plane. But then I'm also still supposed to follow the simple horror mechanics of somebody being in a room that's turning 360 degrees. And it's like, whose instincts are we going here? Because Alex Garland's going to make a movie called Annihilation where we realize this is fully experimental and not totally meant to be understood. But Danny Boyle's still kind of operating under that action movie, like, let me know where the knife is thing. Yes, that is interesting to see the difference between the climactic scene of Annihilation and this. Um, I also think Danny Boyle has a tendency especially movies like this, like in Alien, we always know approximately where everybody is. And in this this movie, you lose track of like Rose Byrne at the end. And then Mark Strong really doesn't have like the villain death. Like he's kind of responsible for a lot of this happening. And then he gets, you know, carved. And then like, you don't really see him die, which is sort of not satisfying. Totally. You, I mean, you praise kind of the, understanding the ship in the lead up but i think as things start to go to hell not understanding what is happening like there's a moment before we return to the mark strong arm grab where he's like reactivating the payload and things are blowing up and i'm like okay this is the end and then you're like oh wait that was only half the thing like it doesn't it's not coherent right spatially do you think the ending is earned the sister and her kids. Oh, 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 oh. Um, Such a weird epilogue, right? feels like a studio note to me. It does. 
And I didn't find anything about anybody not liking the ending. But it feels overly hopeful for a Garland script of being like, there are still people making snowmen and they deserve to live. If not incongruous, it's probably the single most traditional hopeful moment of a Garland script in anything we're going to talk about. For sure. And I also think like it, it has a lot of characters which we talked about, which is definitely a different choice than 28 Days Later. But I don't know, like this, these movies are tough because of course you're going to like lose the majority of the cast in like intriguing and sad and gross and like funny ways. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know. There's something about like the Rubik's cube of putting this together, like doesn't make it feel like the deaths or whatever, like all lined up to properly building the tension and then transforming this movie into a what crept onto our ship movie. Like, why isn't this movie, like, no one really talks about this movie. Like, what um, separates it from being, like, a like a classic in this sense? I think people are into it. Are like, it only made $35 million. Well, I think this is, like, how do you sell, how do you sell a movie of mid-tier, not quite stars with original sci-fi? It's very hard to do. It's why he's on FX right now. I guess, yeah, yeah. Or Hulu, sorry. But it's a partnership it's with both. FX devs, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's coming out um, on FX and then immediately to Hulu. I'm going to give this a good good, but I also want to kind of clarify that I think that both Ex Machina and Annihilation are significantly better movies than either of these first two we've talked about. For sure. Yeah, yeah, I think that's totally fair. And it's, I mean, good thing we didn't watch uh, Tesseract, which I hear is terrible. Adapted from his second novel, where he like gets uncomfortable that the beach was successful and makes it really weird. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I think this is probably a good bad for me. I think it's stunning, okay. and I think it's it's like a good movie. But I don't know that something about how the pieces fit together. You know, it's not on the. If you want to be scared the way like an alien is scary, um, it doesn't quite hit that. Students of Hailsham are special. Keeping yourselves well, keeping yourselves healthy inside, is of paramount importance. None of you will do anything except live the life that has already been set out for you. And sometime around your third donation, your short life will be complete. That's what you're created to do. Two thousand and ten, never let me go. Number three here. This one, Mister Garland decided to adapt the Shiguru novel with the same name. That's right. That's true. Still not directing. This time he teams up with the director of One Hour Photo, one of my favorite movies of all time. Just that, kidding. Was that true? No. Uh, it's. I like the video. Uh, Mark Romanek. Mark Romanek, uh, who does a lot of music videos. So are you primarily a music video director? Famously one of the collaborators on Beyonce's Lemonade. I'm both sort of, I have to say, 
I both kind of like wish we hadn't done this one because it feels so, so minor. But I also think it's very revealing of things that Alex Garland is into. Things about that Alex Garland is into and things that he also has trouble covering up when it comes to sci-fi conceits. Sure. <laughs> Especially when someone is, when he's take borrowing them from a more classical, um, like 20th century set Ishiguro novel. Yeah, you can't be dystopic, dystopian, when you're taking a literary novel that doesn't give you those answers. Unless which he'll learn with Annihilation, you take the Jeff Vandermeer, which is just sci-fi, not really that literary, and give it a movie structure that maybe wasn't there. Yeah, this is like much softer sci-fi, verging on just... People don't agree like, what this... I mean, people said it was great sci-fi when it came out, and then other people were like, no, it's like a literary allegory. It's so interesting how this book is regarded. That's interesting because I have to say like when we got into the back half of this movie and I wasn't getting any information on what kind of world would allow for uh, part of the population to just have their organs harvested for another part. I was like, there has to be an allegory here. And I just started like writing down possible like symbols and reads because there was so little um, world building. Let me run this by you. For a movie that spends most of its dialogue talking about what's happening in the movie, it's the one of the it's the of the three the least uh, the least understandable world rendered. Far and away, and you're right. They don't do anything except talk about their predicament. It's like, oh, it's a shame that we're gonna get uh, completed. Completed, yes. We're going to have to donate soon and get completed. Now, that is a shame. Right. Right. Well, and that's what makes me think it's more of a... I I kept writing... Before I even knew it was an Ishiguro novel, I was like, this is so much more like like a Huxley or an Orwell or like a Daniel Keyes or some sort of like mid-20th century, more like something you'd read in middle school English class. No, it's from 2005. I know, but that's what it reminded me of. I know. Well, it's because it's from The Remains of the Day is also like a very old feeling novel where it's like a fucking butler like talks about his life of servitude. Bring it on. I want to watch. Let's sum it up a little bit. The lives of three friends from their early school days into young adulthood when the reality of the world they live in comes knocking. (laughs) doesn't sound like particularly hard sci-fi when you say it like that does it (laughs) it's not so basically it's well all these movies are kind of like first and second halves it's the before the thing and after the thing so this one is the first half is sort of dead poet society them coming of age at an english boarding school but like not being able to leave the grounds and like you know it's it's sort of a little like red sparrow uh, which also you're only has saying Charlotte that because Rambling Charlotte Rampling is at the front of the classroom <laughs> is the only reason you're saying that. It's similar. It's a very insular school setting with Charlotte Rampling at the at the center of it. Whatever. And then the second half is with non-child and she does actors. Actually teach sex education, doesn't she? Twice. Right. Both movies. Maybe you're what not if it's that far off. All books and movies are connected. It's the same school. They just got her from that little row house later and carted her off to red sparrow university (laughs) 
Keep going. Um, and then the second half is them with adult actors, with Carrie Mulligan, Andrew Garfield, and uh, Kira Knightley, as their sort of lives come to an end very quickly. But there's not a ton of like intrigue about like n- there's no secret police there's no like resistance force uh coming together to have these well you find out i don't think it's a spoiler you find out pretty quickly like the school was sort of a clone school they've been they're like clones of rich people who when they need their organs harvested for replacements that doesn't make any fucking sense to me though we'll, we'll get to that in a second but they have their organs harvested in like one to four surgeries where this person just has their organs taken away and put into their double. Um, but yeah. And then after they either expire during the surgery or like after the fourth one, they just like don't hook them up to the ventilator and they just expire that way. The geography and the way in which details are given to us is sort of odd. So like this world is sort of sort of shown to be off a little. We sort of have that vague title card where it essentially implies that when the transplant was invented, that's when humanity stopped. It references 1952, which was when the first transplant. I looked it up later. Was when the Barnard, first transplant. Right? Yeah. So they're saying that transplantation is like the key to immortality or whatever. And then we are in this very sort of stuffy British boarding school setting. And then we'll get like one little tidbit, like, Oh, there's a rumor that if you go beyond this gate and get your ball, that they'll fucking cut off your arms and feet or your hands and feet. And so they don't do that. And then there's like a, uh, like a John Keating character, the Sally Hawkins one that comes in and teaches the math for 45 minutes. And then is like, you're all clones. You're fucked. <laughs> Everybody run for it. And the kids are like, huh? your paper fell. Let me get that for you. It's very good acting. It's good acting, but like, I never understood like the world enough to understand the subtlety of what they were doing. So like that, this woman was having sort of a breakdown telling these kids like about their fate. Like we didn't know if she was telling the truth. We didn't know how much the kids already knew because it doesn't seem like there's any security at this place, but they no. do have to like swipe in and out. So it's it's sort of weird to me to to know if the school itself is what is strange or if it is the whole world around the school that is also strange, but you're never exposed to it really. So there's no real knowing. And while that I assume could work in a novel in a movie where you're trying to like do the coverage of the world, it's, it's sort of odd to shoot it the way it's shot also to make it look like a, just a charming boarding school movie. Yeah. If it's really like a just horrifying dystopian future. I think it's just having a persistent adaptation problem, which is the book is clearly told from Kathy H's perspective and the movie is shot in this kind of wider third person because the only reason you can keep people in a pen this way and justify the sort of really stilted voiceover in the beginning, middle and end when the acts turn over is to 
have the characters know so little and be so fucked in the head, and you can really feel Mulligan and Garfield playing this at times, that they don't they don't even think to look beyond the fence, so to speak. Like, they can't. Um, they can only wonder who might get their organs and, like, what they may be thinking too, which is something that could be very beautiful um, and kind of, uh, you know drip with a certain melancholy in novel right. but doesn't work here so did it kick you off in any allegory ideas to occupy your time as this movie otherwise just kind of crawled by i was sort of playing with the notion of is this a movie about how baby boomers have laid their like their sort of life liability on the back of the millennials that's interesting. So it's like this whole generation of people that were made in the image of baby boomers have to prop up those aging baby boomers, even if they live past like what they're, but like, that's not really what the movie is. If you no. never go past these like sort of wandering millennials who are like, don't know how to order. It's so weird that they give them like life lessons too, like how to behave in the world but then they like don't know how to behave in the world. It's very weird that the tr- the twist in this movie, if there is a twist to like reframe how the story is being told, has to do with the reputation of the school. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's the like, big thing. You were supposed to think that this school was the epicenter for the ultimate torture of this, you know lab created generation of people who are slaughtered by the time they're 30 and charlotte ramping's like no 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 we were like uh the last montessori school seeing if you guys could still draw if you had souls yeah they were just like a non-profit group trying to prove that we should stop murdering these people and failing it's again it's a well-written speech garland loves that to put the words in the mouth of that character but like right. i didn't really care that much about the reputation of the institute that wasn't the question i was asking it wasn't one of the top 10 she wasn't exactly like offering to put them in the basement you know so like they wouldn't get taken to surgery she was like yeah we tried through usual routes and couldn't raise enough money so you guys are fucked i'll right. see ya I think it's maybe an underrated quality of Garland's work that he is English, and a few of these stories are very English. Just the sense of you being trapped on an island factors very prominently into 28 Days Later, where they realize that they've just been quarantined by the world. Um, And people who have sort of like, you know, misgivings about uh, the legacy and reputations of English culture... I think you could feel some of that anger coming through Danny Boyle in that movie. And I think it must factor into this, because Ishiguro is English as well, um, of just like, yeah, where... Is that the thing I'm not getting? Like, where are they going to go? You're going to drive into the channel? Like, you maybe they just can't go anywhere, and so why would they ever think to? It's like they're in a real-life Truman show... And they're so like comfortable with it that they just don't, they choose not to go anywhere. But like that, a movie about the human spirit that like doesn't cover any sort of desire to like escape. I don't know. Is sort of odd to me. No, you're right though. I just, it got me thinking like, you know, every, if this movie were set in America, you would say a character would be like, 
I guess we drive to Mexico because that's the classic right. stupid American safe. Are hatch. you arguing that like he's saying because like the British are so polite and society is so strict that like even if we had a class of people that we were just harvesting their organs, they would not rise up in any capacity, nor would anyone around us say anything about it because of the implications to our healthcare system. I don't remotely have the awareness to answer this question, but I think this movie has to be saying something about like a like a country rural class of it's very suspicious how white the kids are, right? Like when you just see all their faces in the opening scene, it's almost like Romanek with the cameras being like they are all white in case you are wondering. And right. that that also got stirred this idea up for me. Like, if it's clear that it's just a series of families that they're there to, you know, keep intact, like, some interaction with them, (laughs) I think, would have been more... It just doesn't make sense to me that rich people would have the humanity to let these clones just, like, hang out and just, as long as they, like, check in places... But it seems like the check-in system was set up by the school. That even had, like, nothing to do with the cloning. Like, do they just keep them in labs now? That was my other question, too, is it it seems like they were the last class of clones that were allowed into the world. So now I think they're just, like, living in the labs. Mm -hmm. They're, like, Minority Report or The Matrix or something. I don't disagree with any of this. I think there are 50 different things you could do to make this script have more internal logic. For sure. Yeah, I guess for someone who's so into that internal logic, and at least even if he doesn't say it outright, just like knowing that it's there, like, and that's what I think you will or will not be into with devs. I'm kind of into the obscurity of the central conceit. Uh, Okay. But... This one, I just don't think the underlying like substance is there for him to nerd out about. So it feels ultimately kind of stuffy, kind of like oh, a boring focus features. I know it's Fox Searchlight, but it's so Fox <laughs> Searchlight. We're a bunch of people in an old car and Andrew Garfield's like screaming on the road because he like can't take it. Right. It's a little it's a little weepy and melodramatic for me. A hundred percent agree with all of this. Um, I before I rate it, when I'm going to rate it, I do want to give just like one more hat tip to the actors who I think are hamstrung, other than this like one note of confusion where I think they've all read the book and they understand that like the most interesting note they can play is not knowing how the outside world works. So where the scene where Andrew Garfield walks in on Carrie Mulligan, like reading the porno magazine, she's flipping the pages really fast as though like looking for information. And she's like, he's like, what are you doing, Kathy? And she's like, just looking at dirty pictures, flip, flip, flip. Like those are good notes. And it's even pretty heartbreaking when Garfield says to Kira Knightley, because they think they spot her original, the person she's based on, which again, like how do they know what that is? But he, he's like trying to console her. And he's like, she was really close, wasn't she? As though they were like looking for a, looking for just a physical match for the fun of it. The actors are really trying, but I think this is a bad, bad. Yeah. I think it is a bad, bad. You almost want to give it a good, bad. 
But I just in don't. In the style of good, bad. I just don't think anyone's that good in it either. Like there's some compelling, it's got Ella Purnell who's on Sweet Bitter now. And she's sort of interesting as the younger Kira Knightley. Right. But, and then Charlotte Rampling, of course, is terrifying as always. But yeah, I just don't, I don't know. It's even got uh, Captain Hux. General Hux, I thank you. Sorry. It's even got General Hux. No, you're not taking it again. You Damn fuck. It. It's me. I'm the spy. Um, that show great- that he's in um, with Merritt Weaver looks good on HBO. I don't know. Yeah, this one, as much as I want to give it a... It's definitely in the style of good, bad. But That's what I, I said. think if you poke at it even a little bit, and maybe I would be nicer if it wasn't an Alex Garland podcast. Right. But because I think I'm looking for the Alex Garland seams on this thing, like it's so to see how many there are is sort of frustrating. It's interesting, yes, to see him try something that feels more indebted to a different era of literary science fiction. And I think is also interesting if we can talk for just a couple minutes that the movie he does after this is like enough with the fucking sentimentality of these people who believe if they're in love enough, they get to keep the clones alive. I'm going to go make a movie in a South African tenement building where a guy called the judge just like machine guns people willy nilly while Lena Headey peels people's skin off. Like he really swings the other way for dread. In terms of being overly sentimental for sure. Yes. Um, You started watching dread and then you were like, chance, please God, can we not? Is that I read the yeah I read the first paragraph of the plot synopsis on Wikipedia. I was like, I don't think so. It doesn't go on that long. The skin thing. I don't want to watch a movie where someone gets their skin peeled off in slow motion. It's probably better because you would have just been like a ticky the entire time, and now I don't have to deal with that. Um, Great. That movie is really curious because it has no the the entire time I'm waiting for like the the RoboCop thing where the movie like will nod at you to be like this, some of the worst ultra violence you've ever seen, or I should say the most ultra ultra violence you've ever seen is, is supposed to be a little bit knowing. And the movie just like never fucking winks. And it's kind of horrifying and incredibly ballsy. And Garland, if you listen to uh, Carl Urban, who stars in the, whose chin stars in the movie, um, it's just like, I never took direction from Pete Travis. I just asked Alex Garland what he wanted me to do. Um, so that's kind of his unofficial debut. Wow. And then, of course, Which he you, makes his real debut with Ex Machina. If you, by the way, if you can tolerate um, like B-movie horrifying insanity, I do think it's interesting. But if that's not your bag, do not do it. Yeah, I'm going to have to go with the latter camp on that one. Um. Ex Machina is one of my favorite movies, like, of the last decade, probably. Wow. It's really... I don't, I don't know where it would rank, but it would probably be in, like, the top 30 or 40. Wow. I liked Annihilation a lot. I... Yeah. I, I think we debated this as, like, Annihilation, is it better? Because Ex Machina is just so spare that, right. like... 
you can just be like, oh yeah, there's like 10 things in this movie and they're all pretty close to perfect. And Annihilation is more like that sunshine thing, right? Of like, there's 50 things in this movie and 20 of them are a mystery. <laughs> yeah, I just think it makes, it's so interesting, the the choices that are made with the Annihilation, especially having read the book and seeing where he wanted to put his own stamp on it that as great as Ex Machina is, I do think Annihilation is a better movie. That's, wow. Because now, because this is the podcast, can you tell us where he deviates and puts his own garland touch where Vandermeer did not? Well, they're not all women in the book. And the way the book ends is a lot different in terms of like the, the, it's not quite like the shapeshifter thing from the movie. That's, that's not really the ending of the book. Is the book just as ambiguous or more? No, the book's a little bit more clear. And then there's two more books. Ex Machina, by the way, is on Netflix right now. And Annihilation is on Prime and Hulu. And you can find both of those in our, archives on berealpodcast.com i don't know how the ex machina one sounds that is from 2015 which by the way our show turned five years old this month hey um, look at us go have you ever watched any devs yet nope all tomorrow for me nice so yeah i mean that'll be where we pivot from here continuing this conversation but also starting fresh sure uh, i'm looking forward to it devs part one so we'll do it's eight episodes, so we'll do the first four and then the back four when those are released. Yeah, I don't know. In these times, there is something weirdly, ironically therapeutic about watching these movies where it's like, you don't have any control, especially when you're dealing with something like The Shimmer. So don't worry about it. Yeah, don't worry about The Shimmer. Maybe don't coronavirus the is The Shimmer. Maybe this is the allegory. Maybe Alex Garland's having a big old laugh. We don't know what it wants or if it wants. One of my favorite screenwriterisms from that movie. I think I want to end this episode with one of the great single clips from a movie in recent times. It's from Ex Machina. And it's when Oscar Isaac dances with the AI. Can we just go to that and I can bid you adieu? Let's do it, buddy. Talk to you tomorrow. Go ahead. Dance with her. Dance with her. No? You don't like dancing? She does. Come on, buddy. After a long day of Turing test, you gotta unwind. What were you doing with Ava? What? You tore up her picture. I'm gonna tear up the fucking dance floor, dude. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs>